Welcome to the State of the Lakers podcast. It is Friday. I'm Jason. You guys know me. We got Raj, my guy, is here with us again today. Raj, how's it going, man? You ready for the weekend? I'm ready, man. Welcome, welcome to my time zone, man. I feel like uh, we're around the same time zone now, so we're on the we're on level playing fields here. Yeah, so we had this worked out where it was a little easier for me to get back in time for this because I usually have a bunch of stuff going on on Friday mornings, and then uh, I was up against it today because of the time change, which made things a little more complicated. But uh, also, just quick announcement: I am hardworking on this Wi-Fi situation. I think I have some solutions uh, put together. I'm also going to be trying to edit out some of the gaps when we put the podcast together, but just thank you guys for bearing with me through uh, through the move and getting this set up. Um, uh, but I'm super stoked. I've, we got a lot of really, really good stuff to talk about today. Um, uh, since last weekend, the only thing really that Raj and I were resoundingly wrong about was we thought the Lakers had a good chance to get Blake Griffin. As it turned out, they very much did not. Uh, so, but other than that, we, we talked about how we expected the Lakers to start playing better. Uh, and so mm-hmm. really quickly here at the start, we're just going to talk about how the Lakers have been playing as of late. But I wanted to give you guys some numbers to let you know just how good things have been relative to the way things were before. So in their last eight games, they're 6-2. and two. One of those games, LeBron sat out. So they're basically 6-1 and one in their last seven games that they've played with most of their core players. This is since Dennis Schroeder came back. In that eight-game stretch, they're eighth in offense and they're fourth in defense in their third in net rating. They're 12th in three-point percentage, which, again, the Lakers have never been a great three-point shooting team. But before that, they were the worst three-point shooting team in the league by a wide margin. So that's a market improvement from there. And then they're third in the league in field goal percentage over that span. And this is against some quality opponents. Five of those six wins came against teams that are currently in the playoff picture. So... We we basically talked about how for, like at length about how Dennis Schroeder and his ability to offload some of the ball handling responsibilities from LeBron would lead to a cascading effect that would lead to increased shot quality for the perimeter players to help them get their shots going. It would make it so they couldn't load up on LeBron as much, which would help him get going again. And what do you know? We were right. Dennis Schroeder's return just kind of put everybody back in their proper role and got the Lakers back on track. So what have you noticed that you've liked about them in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, it looks like they've got their energy back. Um, KCP looks like he has his legs back, and the whole team is just running at a better pace. Um, and like you said, with the three-point shooting, they're what, they were at 12th in the league. They really just need a baseline amount, right? Like last night there was a stretch, um, I think, when the Hornets were coming back, and then Kuzma hit like three straight. KCP hit one in the game, went back to 10, and that, that's really all they need. But uh, like I, th- I think the Lakers are now like eleven and two when Schroeder and LeBron play. Like just those, just those two, which is kind of insane. Which just shows how much they need another shot creator. And um, I feel like that's really been the big help. Even when Schroeder struggles, he gets into the paint, he kicks out. He's getting a lot better at driving and kicking. And uh, yeah, that's mostly what I've seen. And the defense has been consistent. We, we've talked about this for the last few weeks. Um, they're they're really aggressive. Uh, the guards hedge up, <clears throat> and then um. Damian Jones, man, I know we talked about Blake Griffin uh, coming in. The Lakers really just plugged in a 10-day dude as a starting center, and they have not missed a beat. The defense is still still uh, working fine. Um, everything is going into rhythm, and uh, he's blocking shots. Last night he was deterring people from getting to the rim, um, and he's in their scheme perfectly. So, yeah, that, it's cool to see. It looks like AD is going to be out for a while, so this team looks like they're starting to get comfortable playing without him, which is important considering 
I think they're going to play a couple better teams going forward here. Well, you 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 said it right there. Like the the without AD, all those numbers all of a sudden look that much more impressive. Like for you to be right. the eighth best offense in this stretch, the sixth or the fourth best defense in this stretch, the third best net rating team. You know, six and one against like a bunch of high quality playoff opponents. That within the context of not having Anthony Davis is super super good news. And I thought you made, you brought a, you made a really interesting point about the shooting like you know I think last night the Lakers were only 33% from 3 so it wasn't even a great shooting game even though they had been pretty good as of late. But the important part there is like when you defend as well as they do and when you put as much pressure on the rim as they do like I said third in field goal percentage in this stretch you don't need to make all your threes. You don't need to shoot like the, the the Utah Jazz. You just need to make enough of them. And and that's that cascading effect I kept talking about. I talked a lot about how Dennis Schroeder being out made the it hurt the spacing in the sense that they were able to load up a little bit more on LeBron as he would fatigue through the game. And it led to limited shot quality, which led to the Lakers starting to get cold. Uh, right. But and then and, and it even went to LeBron, who's LeBron was like over forty percent for the season and has been over forty percent in his last you know six seven games or whatever. But in that stretch without Schroeder, his shot fell apart. In my opinion, in large part because of the fact that his offensive responsibilities went up and defenses were loading up on him, and it started to cause him to lose some of his you know level of comfort out from the perimeter. Uh, so, so you said it, you made a great point. Like it's just you, you, they don't even need to be an elite shooting team. They just need to knock down, you know, 35% ish of their threes to be the dominant force that they, that they can be. Uh, uh, but everybody seems to be playing better. It's like an overall like confidence and flow thing. And, and, and you, you, you said it too, like their defense has been consistent. That's the most impressive part is this isn't like a, you know, oh, for the season, they're first overall, but in the last couple months, they've been falling apart. It's like, right. no, every single calendar month, they're great on the defensive end. It is the bread and butter of their team. It's their identity, and it's what makes them such a dependable team in the playoffs. Right, and, and we talked about how, like, their scheme kind of switched from last year, right? They were a lot more of, like, a um, protect-the-rim kind of funnel. But, I mean, last night, Charlotte is a team that makes, like, 13 threes a night. And they were just running them off the line. I think in the first half, Charlotte took like six threes, which just shows like how aggressive they are um, getting out, running people off the line, um, forcing them into the paint. I think the Lakers also give up a lot of paint points. But again, like that's all more volume, I feel like, because they are really running dudes off the line last night. Charlotte has a bunch of players like Rogier, um, guys like that who want to get up a huge volume of attempts. And they really kind of ran them off uh, nicely. So that was that was nice to see. And like, again, man, I keep going back to that Damian Jones. Like they really just fit a guy that was, you know, out of the was going to be out of the league pretty much and just fit him into the starting line. Marcus Saul has been out a few games like and it's just like they just keep pushing on. So um, their scheme kind of is working through any personnel. LeBron has really picked it up defensively. He had a huge night last night um, helping and all that. So, yeah, man, it, it's awesome to see. And we'll see if they can pick it up. Four wins in a row. And uh, I think they play Atlanta tomorrow uh, in the afternoon game. They've got a winnable back-to-back this weekend. They play Atlanta. And then uh, Phoenix is a really good team. but And it's on the road. And it's a back-to-back. But I think the Lakers are going to be coming for blood in that one. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think that's the, that's the one loss at uh, since Dennis Schroeder came back and LeBron has been playing. Uh, so I think that's one they'll go after. But the Damian Jones thing is interesting, and I was thinking about this a lot with that uh, 
uh, that guy who's the big Claxton, the big for Brooklyn that's been playing really well. And everyone goes like, oh, well, this this Claxton guy's awesome. This Claxton guy's awesome. And don't get me wrong, both Damian Jones, Claxton, these guys have been playing great. I don't want to undercut the way they're playing. But they're such a classic example of how when you have like an elite system and you have an extremely simplified role that you right. filled, that someone can step in and do it. Like Damian Jones was extremely active around the rim. Uh, uh, on both ends in the last few games, getting tip dunks, blocking shots at the rim, things along those lines, finishing lobs and things uh, like just just really simple stuff that made the game easy for him. And you know, it's no different than, gosh, what's his name? Who's the who's the the tall lanky guard that's uh, like the fifteenth man for the Lakers who's been playing? Uh, McKinney, Alfonso McKinney, is that? Uh, Alfonso McKinney, yeah, yeah. Like uh, same same thing when he was with the Warriors. Like he just. He, uh, in an extremely simplified role as like that fifth starter, everyone was freaking out. Remember Stephen A. Smith had his big thing with Alfonso McKinney is the next great <laughs> warrior. It's like that's what happens when you're playing around really good players. And that, and and I think that uh, that's the beauty of being in a cap-strapped position is, you know, when you have everything else covered, all the bases covered, and you have a guy that's got a discernible talent, you know, like this guy is super tall and can jump out of the gym and his long arms and is mobile. Like that's an easy discernible role that you can slot into that defense and uh, an offense. And so I agree with you. I mean, I do think I disagreed with some of a uh, Lakers Twitter last night. I know uh, Kings, the, you know, the, the guy's the, the regular guest on, on Jason Maple's mm-hmm. podcast. Like he was talking about how, why would you want, why would you want, uh, you know, Andre Drummond with how well Keith is playing and with how well Damian Jones is playing. And my thing is like, d- Andre Drummond in the super simplified role that Damon Lee is playing would be, or uh, Damon Jones is playing would be dominant. Okay. Like the same thing that you saw from Dwight Howard, but almost to another level, in my opinion, because it's the simplified role. It's the, it's the very little that you're asking him to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And that's where I'm at with it too. It's funny when people are like, Oh, did you watch him with the Cavs? I'm like, yeah, that's the Cavs. I mean, this is, he's going to play next to LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Like it's a totally different role um then then he'd be on with that team and you know a guy that can get 20 rebounds at once i mean why not you get him for free you pick him up off the buyout market um you wouldn't trade for him obviously but a guy like that is just those guys don't just grow on trees you know what i mean you can't just find that um i feel like he would be excited he would he would be more than motivated here um he'd be playing for another contract i mean i just don't like damian jones is a really nice player but the talent like the just a talent gap between him and andre drummond is pretty large those are Two totally different. I think Andre Drummond has made an All Star team. If I don't, if I recall correctly, he might have came close. Yeah, I think one he's time made team. one. I'm not. Sure. I think. He's, yeah. yeah, he's he's been around that weekend a lot. I know. He's, I think he was in the dunk contest or something like that. But the, the talent gap between those two is pretty large. Now, I love what Jones has been doing. He's a guy that's played well. I think he's earned a second. Well, I don't think he can get another ten day, but he's earned a contract somewhere. I don't know if he'll be with the Lakers, but yeah, the gap between him and Andre Drummond, a guy that rolls as hard as he does, who can, you know, he he's can catch lobs he can uh protect the rim at some point in some way uh, when he's motivated so yeah i just think it's a total talent gap that we're seeing and i feel like we're gonna we we talked about this with blake griffin i feel like his role with the nets is gonna be so supercharged and specific that um people are gonna be like oh my god where was this guy well he's playing next to katie harden and you know Kyrie, so it's it's gonna be totally different and we'll we'll see if uh, they'll pick up drummond i i think he's gonna get bought out here soon uh coming coming up 
Yeah. So, uh, well, the, with the Blake Griffin example, the trick is uh, uh, the the role is small offensively, and I do expect him to succeed in that role. But is is what they need from that position defensively doesn't really uh, make sense in my opinion. Uh, but I, I, as far as Andre Drummond goes, like the the Damian Jones represents insurance against that. Like Damian mm-hmm. Jones has demonstrated that in limited minutes in his very tiny role, he can be productive enough for the Lakers to win uh, with him on the floor. So like if you get Andre Drummond, you let Damian Jones go and you have this supercharged version of that for the rest of the season. If he doesn't, then you keep Damian Jones. That's the beauty of, of, mm-hmm. of Damian Jones is he's insurance against that. Uh, but, but yeah, like it's like as far, what was the other thing you brought up? I'm trying to think, uh, Oh, Drummond. Yeah. So, uh, I listened to the Woj pod yesterday or might've been the day before. Uh, he basically said that, that the Cleveland really wants a second round pick, but the craziness, uh, cause that's what they paid for Andre Drummond and they just want to get their yeah. money back basically. But the trick is, is like trying to match his salary at that number. It's extremely difficult. And so they do very much expect him to get bought out. Uh, Now, he also said in that podcast that he expects Drummond to start uh, if he played for the Lakers, but that he would not start if he played for the uh, if he played for the Nets. And I don't really necessarily see what would be standing in the way of him starting with the Nets either. And arguably, there would be more minutes available there because when uh, when Drummond gets back, or if Drummond came to L.A. and Anthony Davis comes back, there's just not a lot of availability for him there in those lineups uh, with Anthony Davis back. But again, like I said, if 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 Rob gets him on the phone and he's like, "Yeah, I'm coming to L.A.," like, yeah, I, I, he's gonna be that supercharged version of Damian Jones because all of the things you worried about with him were the same things you worried about with Dwight. All the Dwight pessimists were like, "I worry about his attitude." He's famously unliked in the locker room. He makes too many fart jokes. He does all this. Like, literally, Dwight Howard, at, it, oh, he, all, he he's constantly calling for post-ups. He never likes to screen and roll. He never likes to do all these things. And then, literally, none of those things were a problem because of the, the cachet that LeBron had in that locker room and his ability to basically stare fireballs into Dwight and be like, don't you don't you know like like don't mess with me man and so he's gonna do the same thing with Drummond and and he's gonna come back and 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 he's gonna be some you know minimized version of a minimized role version of what he did and he's got freakish tools like he's arguably the best bet to get a 2020 on any given night you know what I mean right and you can't just find those guys you know what I mean and people people forget with Dwight the amount of questions there were and Dwight wasn't even on a guaranteed deal until December I mean, I know they guaranteed a little earlier, but we just we just forget those kind of things. So, yeah, when you put them into this kind of environment, this locker room, and, man, if Vogel can get Damian Jones in a defensive stand, like last night there was a play um, where, like, I think Gordon Hayward was running a pick and roll and, like, Jones was icing it, and I think KCP or something made the wrong play. And so he had a switch, so he switched on Gordon Hayward, and he's, like, in a full defensive stance, moving his feet. He cut him off. And then I think Gordon Hayward kicked it to somebody who dunked. I think LeBron missed his rotation there. So I was like, man, he's got this guy, you know, in a defensive stance moving. And um, I think it was one of the Warriors. I think it was Tommy. I think he's he quoted me. He's like, 
Damian Jones couldn't even play three minutes under Steve Kerr because of, you know, he was just fouling out every second. So I thought that was kind of funny, but, but, uh, but yeah, um, he has him playing, you know, great defense. I just can't imagine what he does with someone with the defensive talent as uh, an Andre Drummond could have. But again, this is all potential. I mean, this is all on Drummond if he's going to buy in and things like that. But I just think this culture is something to bet on uh, with a player of that kind of, that kind of talent. You just, you just don't um, deny those kind of things uh, when you have this kind of team. For sure, hundred percent, and and I, I, we just have seen so many examples uh, of dude with on bad team getting around really high IQ players with a real good chance to win and it, it reinvigorating them. Uh, like I, mm-hmm. I have absolutely no doubt that PJ Tucker is going to play really well for for Milwaukee. Uh, a couple other notes that we noticed uh, uh, from the last eight games. Uh, I have been extremely hard on Talon Horton Tucker as of late uh, uh, in the last couple podcasts that we've done. It is worth mentioning that he has more or less regained somewhat of his offensive rhythm that he had earlier in the season and that he's been much better on the defensive end. It, that's typical for young players to ebb and flow in their focus and to ebb and flow in their confidence. But it's I want to pay him the compliment of saying that uh, uh, he has seemingly bounced back and has actually had some crazy, uh, really, really productive shifts in his last few games uh, where he's looked really good. What have you noticed from THT? Yeah, so I feel like rookies go through this thing where, like, the league figures them out, right? And then usually after that, they usually don't refigure out the league until, like, the next season. And I think it's really cool that, like, he's figured out, okay, when I drive, everybody is collapsing. Like, the paint is just going to collapse. And he's he's doing a nice job kicking out before he turns it over. Um, he still jumps the pass a lot, which gets him in trouble. But, like, he's... He's going in and he knows exactly where everyone is based on the floor. Um, Vogel has kind of made it easy um, because they've really gone a high screen and roll with him. Or usually they'll have him run off a couple um, drag screens on the side and he'll come up and run a screen roll with Trez or something. He knows exactly where the shooters are. So he'll get in the air and then kick to Kuzma in the corner or he'll find Harrell at the, uh, at the dunker spot. I think that's really where he's grown. He's still, I mean, I've never seen a player who goes for a reverse on the right side with the wrong hand as much as he does like he's looking for that which is funny but yeah he's he's played so much better and um what i really like is they played him a lot next to schroeder so like vogel has really adjusted in there um, and they have two guys who just put a lot of pressure on the rim consistently i think that's helped him he drives takes it back to schroeder and the shooter can redrive and then re-kick which um i think has really helped him a lot and uh, yeah he just looks so much better i think he's turnover his turnovers are down um he's not taking those weird fadeaways like in the paint uh, as much as he used to so yeah he's he's been great I think you talked about it he's gonna stay on the floor for his defense like if, if he can defend he's gonna play and he's been a lot better he's not falling asleep as much he still gets lost sometimes on switches I think last night uh, there was a play where I think Graham uh Graham and Rogier run a screen and roll and they should have just switched or Lamello and uh, Graham were a, ran a screen and roll and they should just switched it and instead he tried to like hedge and recover and Graham got an open three or something so but he's, he's doing a lot better um and yeah he's 20 man which is which I have to keep telling myself when I watch him, like he's 20 years old. He's a year older than LaMelo who got drafted like five months ago, which is, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So the, the, the reverse layup thing is funny. Cause I was thinking about this a lot last night that it, it goes crosswise to everything that you're taught growing up as a basketball player, because so the trick is, is like when you do that, that same, that, that wrong hand reverse layup, mm-hmm. uh, you're showing the defender, the ball. So that's right. one of the big reasons why you're trained not to do that because it's it's an easier shot to block because it's like defender side and you're you're making it extremely visible to him as you're going up. But what THT does that counters that 
is he instead of like kind of doing it straight in front of him, he kind of turns his body and like positions his back between the defender and the basket and literally uh, or puts the defender between his back and the basket and he'll literally kind of go behind his head. And he's it's a tougher so, shot, right? Yeah, which is a tougher <laughs> shot. But I thought about that a lot too, and it's because he has such huge hands. Like he's got like mm-hmm. he's not as tall as Kawhi, but he's got some Kawhi esque uh, physical traits. And one of the big ones is just how big his hands are. Uh, but he right. just he gets you on his hip. He turns his body away from you and just does the scoop. Almost it's almost like a backwards shot, which is which is crazy. But but it works. But you you're 100 percent right. The defense is going to be what keeps him on the floor, and. You know, my guess is that his role in this playoff run will actually look a lot like what it was last year, which is he's going to get these spot minutes. uh, And when he's playing well, they're going to ride him. And if he makes one or two defensive mistakes at the start of a game, uh, I think I think Frank's going to go away from him because Frank has just demonstrated at length that that's the number one thing that that he cares about. But the last thing I'll say about THT before we move on is like, you know, this is something I'm going to harp on a lot. Uh, throughout the season and it's something that I mentioned with Contavious Caldwell Pope last night you know the Lakers you know as far as offensively goes the reason why THT's offense is never going to factor into his minutes is because outside of Dennis Schroeder none of the guards really bring that much offensively like KCP is hot and cold sometimes as a shooter he's probably your best offensive guard outside of Dennis Schroeder but it's like Caruso's super inconsistent offensively Wesley Matthews has been awful this season offensively. Like you're not getting a ton from those guys. So you can live with the offensive mistakes with THT because a bad night from him is going to look more or less like most nights from Alex Caruso offensively that you, you just have to get him to commit on the defensive end. But what I think is really interesting about THT on the offensive end is when Dennis Schroeder and LeBron are playing and especially when Anthony Davis gets back, they are putting so much pressure on the defense where almost everything that these guys do offensively is about attacking closeouts. Something I'm going to harp mm-hmm. on all the time. It's something I've talked a lot about with KCP is you're, you're not asking them to isolate and run pick and roll and do all this crazy stuff that often. For the most part, it's you get, you get the ball swung to you. A defender is out of position and you have to make a quick compact move to get past him and he, to either draw a second defender or do something that that uh, either creates a three for one of your teammates or gets all the way to the rim and finishes. And I thought as of late that THT, a lot of his offense has actually come from attacking closeouts. And he's so strong and he's so good at finishing around the rim that when they can get him uh, with a head of steam uh, past a defender who's disadvantaged, he's deadly in those situations. And so I, I, I think that there is a clearly discernible role for him, especially in the playoff rotation. He just needs to de- defend well enough uh, to, to stay there. Yeah, and, and it's crazy. He's already at the point where, like, if he goes right, I know he's going to score or get fouled or something like that. Because if you let him go right, that's a strong hand. He doesn't have to reverse it. He can flip it up to the rim normally. Um, and you talked about when he plays with LeBron. But remember early in the year, we were – even when AD was here, we were kind of talking about the non-LeBron minutes, like where the offense is going to come from. And it was a struggle. And, again, I go back to those Schroeder and THT lineups, man, because – we talk about we're going to talk about the rest of the league later, but like you look at like the Clippers, we talk about them all the time how they don't put enough pressure at the rim. But when, when you have two guards who just attack the rim relentlessly, because Schroeder he wants to get to his mid range pull up, but he likes to get to the rim. He likes to put on his burners, get to the basket, and THC does the same thing. And again, that's why I feel like they played so well. I think you I think you tweeted out earlier that they had like their first um, plus 
game where LeBron when LeBron didn't play or something like that to the first like positive minutes without of LeBron uh, of the month yeah and, they and were that was I think again last night so two nights in a row yeah right and I, I think that's when the THT and Schroeder lineup started um because it, and they're scrolling really well with that they're getting open looks and uh they're getting Harold I think is part of that as well they're finding him so they really got a nice niche role for THT where they're like hey just attack the rim do what you do um they're not making him be a spot-up shooter anymore. They tried that. They tried to fit him into that role. I don't think that's what he is right now. He's just not efficient enough at shooting to be a good spot-up shooter. They have him attacking the basket relentlessly, and he's getting in the paint. He's causing havoc, and yeah, it's great. I feel like the league's going to adjust again to what he's doing, but right now uh, he's doing a good job just finding people and scoring at the rim when he can. And like last night, like Cody Zeller was on him, and he like Euro-stepped. He did like a, he like a double fake fake pass euro step i'm like man this is this is, this is insane <laughs> this is crazy and yeah he doesn't even see the big anymore if you have if you don't have rim protection it's over he's gonna score at the rim which is which is crazy for a guy who's that young and that raw still playing he, he's pretty good uh, against rim protection too uh yeah and to be clear i I've, I've said this a bunch this year and i just want to re you know reiterate it here uh I, when i bring up at length the non-LeBron minutes and how much the Lakers have struggled, which they have. They flat out Mm -hmm. have. They have been a bad team this year when LeBron is off the floor, and it's a problem. I'm not talking about, like, this is a crap team and LeBron's carrying them. That's not what I'm saying. To me, it's pointing out the problem with the fact that with as much talent this roster has, they have to figure out a way to get it done. And, you know, it it was one thing when when Dennis Schroeder was out, and like literally none of, nobody on the team could dribble outside of LeBron <laughs> and, and they were falling apart when he was off the floor. That was one thing. But this has been a problem even when Dennis Schroeder has been playing, even when Anthony Davis was playing. I pulled up the numbers again. I had looked it up a while back, but I wanted to make sure. This year, in 201 minutes where Dennis Schroeder and Anthony Davis were on the floor, but LeBron was off the floor, they're minus 2.5 per points per 100 possessions. It's been a problem. And so, I, you know, some of it's frank. Some of it's AD not embracing uh, his job on this team. Uh, and, and some of it is some of the fit stuff with Dennis Schroeder as they've kind of learned how to play together. But there is enough talent on this team that they have to figure out how to win the non-LeBron minutes. There's no excuse. Mm-hmm. They have yeah. enough talent. And so, again, just to reiterate, I'm not saying, oh, this is a crap team and LeBron's carrying them. I'm just pointing out the problem with the fact that they're not doing the, – the, the, everyone involved needs to do a better job so that this stops happening. And and for the record, this Dennis Schroeder and THT lineup that you're talking about appears to have solved some of that. And for two games now in a row, the Lakers have been positive in the non-LeBron minutes. And that's the – the positive in the non-LeBron minutes is the difference between this being one of the most dominant teams ever and being as good as they have been. They had problems with that last year. Did I drop out? Yeah. Can you guys hear me? No, you're good. Yeah, okay, uh, cool. let me throw let me, let me throw a theory at you because I heard this on the low post and I just thought it was interesting. I'm not. I don't know if I agree or um, really go with this, but it said like when you have an offense that revolves around LeBron, right? Because it's very heliocentric, right? It's all around him pretty much when he's on the floor. When he goes off, I mean, it's kind of tough to kind of, um, I guess, change that, right? Because he's playing what 35, 36 minutes a game, which means you know there's only two small shifts where you're really playing without him. So those minutes are kind of experimental anyway kind of when you're when you're in there so I, I don't know if I really adhere to that I understand it like from a 
from like a just a team standpoint because everything does run through LeBron. But like, do you think that's a struggle when you have a like just even like you don't even have to go with LeBron? Look at when Luca sits out for the Mavs, right? They completely fall apart. They go and run Porzingis post up and stuff, which just doesn't make any sense to me. But like, you just you just look at that when Luca goes out or even guys like LeBron, James Harden, they go off the floor. It's just. I feel like those minutes, if you can be neutral, I think you're okay. And again, that's the difference, like you said, being like a super dominant team and being like a, you know, a good regular season team. Do you, you kind of go with that theory that like it's tough to kind of build a offense that's good without LeBron because it's so helios, it's it's so revolves around him when he's on the floor anyway. So I think it's kind of tough to have a have lineups that I guess are so positive when he's off the floor. So there's this weird thing that that dredges of of the basketball world are obsessed with, where it's like any any talking point that works in LeBron's favor for whatever it is, or in LeBron's <laughs> defense, people will go to just unbelievable lengths and absurd premises to try to undercut them. And this heliocentric basketball one is is a perfect example of that. Like the there there's a difference between the Dennis Schroeder problem, like when he went out, where it's like okay, they're losing the non-LeBron minutes because they don't have the talent because of right. a lack of ball handling outside of LeBron. That's different. And you had some of that with the like the 2018 Cavs, for instance, where it's like, mm-hmm. no, 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 like they literally, they, it, uh, there's no way for them to win the non-LeBron minutes because of the way the roster is constructed, which really wasn't even their fault. It, it came down to Kyrie Irving demanding a trade when they were cap-strapped. Like that's what really happened there. Um, yeah, but the you know uh, the when, when the teams had Kyrie, you know when, uh, when the Cavs had Kyrie, the, this Laker team is another great example with Anthony Davis and Dennis Schroeder. This is you know you got to be pros and and hats off to uh, to the Mavericks for figuring out like okay, literally Luka Doncic is the most heliocentric basketball player that, of that one mm-hmm. one of them the one of the most that we've ever seen. And you know what? They figured it out because they're pros. Your job as the coach, your job as the backup point guard, your job as the the, the secondary ball handler, your job is to figure it out. You know what? Like right. you have to figure it out, you know, because he's doing his job. The heliocentric guy is doing his job when he's on the floor. You as a professional have to figure it out, especially when you have that kind of talent. And so, yeah, I d- I've never prescribed to that line of thinking. And, yeah. and, and, and I do think there's a huge difference between like, the roster build part of it, you know, like the, you know, if, if they've designed like some, some like the, like James Harden is a great example. Like they kind of designed a heliocentric style and built the roster around him. So I don't think it's fair for them to be like, Oh, they lost 17 straight games without James Harden. It's like they lost 17 straight games because that roster was designed entirely to have James Harden hold the ball all the time. So that to me is different. Uh, yeah. uh, but, but yeah, like I, I, I've never prescribed to that line of thing, thinking. Yeah, and I think that was part of the conversation, too. Like, if you have LeBron James on your team, like, how much are you going to really use in terms, like, in a cap field, in a salary cap league, how much are you going to give for a, you know, a high star point guard that's going to also have the ball, you know, 50% of the time. And I, I think we saw that with Houston as well, right, when they got Chris Paul. And I think it worked out really well. It's just they didn't, Harden really wasn't, um accepting of the of the kind of situation where he was getting told where to go by chris paul and again that's kind of like when you have someone who's so you know uh into a heliocentric offense when he tries to share it with another person even when they win because the rockets won they still had huge issues just because he was trying to adjust so i think that was the main question there was like can you build in i think you can and again like i think Schroeder and ad should be more than good enough to have a positive 
net when LeBron sits. But I just thought it was an interesting thing that, you know, Zach Lowe, Zach Lowe kind of, kind of brought up, um, in terms of roster building kind of more rather than just like, just giving the coach an excuse of why it doesn't work. Yeah, I think it kind of cut off. Let's see. Yeah, okay. It's better now. There you go. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Cool. Yeah, I, I think they will figure it out. It's just something that we need to monitor. That's all. And yeah. Like I said, I think as far you know, we talk about holding, you know, like if for instance, if Frank Vogel was doing a bad job with his scouting reports, you would hold him accountable for that. Or if LeBron wasn't doing his job, you'd hold him accountable for that. I think I think it's okay as a fan base to hold this very talented roster accountable for their job, which is to you know, uh, you know, float the ship while LeBron's out. You don't even have to win those minutes. Just, dude, don't, don't have yeah. the bottom fall out. That's really, it's really <laughs> that, it's really that simple. Um, sure. So, one last guy I wanted to really quickly touch on before we move on uh, to some of our other topics uh, was Markeith Morris. Is I, I, you know, he's one of the guys that I was harder on earlier in the season as well uh, because he didn't look, he didn't look like he was in shape. He uh, wasn't making shots. He like he just was struggling everywhere on the floor. He's become kind of like a sneaky weapon for them. He's pretty good attacking mismatches, uh, a very very good post up defender, and then he's one of their most reliable three point shooters as of late. Uh, I've I've been really impressed with him, and so I'd like he's another guy that kind of adds like some insurance at that center position. Yeah, so I, I tweeted before the season started. I said Marquise Morris at the minimum is just stupid value. Like in my opinion, I don't like to put players in terms of value kind of thing, but just like looking at it from a cap situation, getting that kind of player for the minimum is just insane because we watched him in the playoffs. He was starting against Houston. The Lakers' big um, advantage against Houston was starting him and being like, we can match here, you know, small ball lineup and put him in AD uh together and i was kind of getting killed for that because of how he started but again everything is contextual you know 71 day off season he's spoken at lengths about it he's been very open that he's really struggled um with the quick turnaround and trying to get his legs uh get his legs under him and so you can see him he's moving so much better now there was just it's night and day i mean i think the other day not not against nor not against charlotte but the game before i think it was against Minnesota he had like an up and under layup like he drove and like uh he did like up under I'm like man there was no way he was doing anything close to that early in the year and his body just looks more fluid he's a really good sneaky like isolation scorer like he's a guy you can throw it into him and eat possessions as we say you know so like if LeBron doesn't feel like creating he just like here Marquise and he'll just eat that possession and you'll get a you'll get a good look out of it and I think that's important I think that's uh very valuable um he's not like a great three-point shooter but he's streaky so like he's a guy if he hits one um you can find him and he'll hit another one in a row kind of thing and he had a quick 5-0 run last night when the hornets were coming back so and he's defending a a lot better yeah Yeah, and so he's not like a switchable defender but you know he can hold his own Uh, guys can't really attack him in that way they don't hunt him um and yeah i think he's been good he'll be like he's another guy i think that like his skills get uh, exceeded playing next to Anthony Davis. He's a guy that like gets better when he plays against plays with better players. Um, I think early in the year he was playing with like THT um, Trez as like the shot creators <laughs> in a lineup with him. And he just looked really bad just to even add on to his conditioning, which was bad to start. So now he's, he looks like the bubble Marquise. So he's, 
he's picking it up. Yeah, he's got he's got his legs back, and uh, mm-hmm. and you know the the big thing with him is like something that I I like about him more than I like about his brother is that he has shown at least last year that uh, when you know Anthony Davis comes back and in the start to lean heavily on uh, did I cut out or can you hear me? No, you're good. You're good. When when things really start to, when they really start to lean on LeBron and AD more, he has actually been the kind of guy who can fall back into a really small role and and just mm-hmm. do his job. And and to me that makes him very valuable. And he's not a ball stopper. He's a ball mover, but at the same time they can't they can ask him to be Marcus Morris and be a little bit more of an isolation guy when they need him to. And like you said, it's a, it's it's eating possessions. It's give it allowing LeBron to rest while he's on the court. That that kind of stuff is all super super valuable. Um did you have something else you want to add or are you cool if we move on? No, yeah, I think that's good. That's good on Morris. So, uh, last thing I want to talk about before we hop around to some other stuff around the league was uh, uh, the MVP race. So, you know, part of this is, you know, uh, the unfortunate circumstance that that Joel Embiid has uh, has suffered an injury that's caused him to miss ten games, and uh, very likely to miss probably another close to ten. And uh, I would imagine at this point that the Sixers are going to take it really slow with him, especially since they have shown an ability to win some games with Ben Simmons at the forefront. Uh, but, you know, sometimes like sometimes there's like a moment of clarity in the sense that, you know, like and last night was a good example of it where you just start to kind of look at the landscape and you go like, oh, well, like this is an obvious decision. And you look at it and it's like the Lakers had a super short turnaround. They had 72 days off, you know, from the, from hoisting the trophy to having to literally start playing NBA basketball games again. Anthony Davis has missed almost half the games. Dennis Schroeder missed a week for COVID. Marcus Gasol's missed a couple weeks for COVID. KCP sprained his ankle at one point. LeBron has played almost every single game, and the Lakers have been the best defense in the league. He's been a he's going to make one of the all defense teams, probably second team all defense. And, and and there's no reason in the world why he should not be the the the, the front runner at this point. And I, I think it's pretty clear cut. It's just they're the they're the best. They're uh, a game and a half back of the best record in basketball, despite circumstances that have worked very much against their favor. The team that's above them in the standings, Utah, has had a much much more fortunate season in terms of player availability. And you know I don't think there's any question that that LeBron has had a better MVP type of season than anybody on that Utah roster. And so I think, I think things are LeBron's MVP case is this two, two really quick things last year, everyone submitted their Giannis votes halfway through the damn season. (laughs) It, It was, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And ego plays a huge part in this, you know, a guy comes on Twitter and goes like, Oh, Giannis is far and away the, the MVP leader at this point. And then when somebody makes a run at the end of the season, like LeBron did, they're all super hesitant because of their egos to change their mind about anything. Cause then they'd have to admit they were wrong about saying that Giannis was the runaway MVP favorite earlier in the season. And so I hope that LeBron gets a little bit of that in his favor at this point. Cause I feel like he caught the short end of that stick last year. And here's the last thing I'll say about it. If he gets the trophy, the MVP trophy, he will have deserved it because they're about to head to a super tough part of their schedule without AD. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think just next to them, 
you know, the, and they have one of the toughest schedules in the league here down the stretch. So they're they're flat out going to need him to be the MVP to stay near the top of the standings. And if we get to the end of the season and the Lakers are the two seed out west or the two seed in the league or even better, like there's going to be there's there's not going to be anything you can say because there's it, it just w- w- heading into this difficult portion of the schedule and without AD. You know, the, he's going to have to prove it, and I believe he will. But but we'll see how it goes. Yeah, so my thing with the MVP is, like, if you went before the season, right, even with the Lakers additions and, you know, there people were saying that, you know, they won the offseason or whatever, um, if you were like, okay, take Anthony Davis off this team, how many wins would they have? Like, just straight, if you asked, like, if you polled the national writers, they'd probably say, like, what, 40-something wins. Yeah, like, like with no Warriors. AD. Yeah, it, not, uh, maybe not as bad as the Warriors, but um, yeah, they would say it would be a pretty bad team. And they're second in the West. I mean, I was just looking at the records, man. Like Utah is only at one and a half games above. Anthony Davis has been 40, 42% of the season. Rudy Gobert has missed one game. I was checking. Oh, no, he has missed zero games. Uh, Donovan Mitchell has missed two games. Like they've been completely healthy and still I think they flew a little too close to the sun. They're starting to torpedo back to earth. But, um, yeah, it's just crazy. When he, that's his case. Like, I don't know how that's not leading all of the um, whatever shows that I don't watch anymore, but all those MVP debate shows. The lead should be Anthony Davis has missed 42% of the season, and they are tied with the Suns. They are a game and a half back of this of the Utah powerhouse that was blowing through the league for a while. So that's his case to me. And, again, he has a – I think it was interesting. You tweeted out that, like, the Bucks had three players make the – all defense last year, which is just ridiculous. It was just just ridiculous. The Lakers were a game behind Milwaukee when the when the season shut down. I think people kind of forget that how much of a run they made, and obviously they just lollygagged through the bubble games because none of them mattered. They had they had the one seed locked up, so it didn't matter anymore. And I think Milwaukee, you know, won a few of those games more. But again, when the season shut down, it was around March or something like that, or yeah, some I forget, but um. Uh, they were a game back of Milwaukee, which, who, again, who started off blazing hot and came back to earth. And LeBron's MVP case was kind of growing. But like you said, that vote was submitted That vote was submitted a long time ago. Giannis was going to win his win shares or per 75 or whatever numbers were blowing through the water. And I think you've talked about that at length. He was beating up on bad teams. But, again, not even to, not even to diminish Giannis because I think he's earned his two MVPs. But, yeah, LeBron wins this year. He probably has a narrative going for him. I mean, it's – I don't know why that's like taboo to say. I mean, you kind of earn it. You play 18 years in the league, you earn a little bit of a narrative kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why that's taboo. They're like, oh, no, every MVP should be year by year. Nothing in life works without context. Like, it just it just doesn't. You can't ignore Giannis flaming out two straight playoffs and giving up. You just can't. Context is in everything in life. Why are we going to ignore it with, with an award? So I, I think that that's part of it as well. And he'll earn it. I mean, he's played great defense as well. You could argue he's in the defensive player of the year. He won't get that award. I don't think he's in the defensive player of the year conversation. That's one thing I think LeBron fans have taken a little too far. Uh, But I mean, I I would, yeah, he wouldn't. I don't say he would win it, but I mean, like this defense is being carried by him, Marcus All, and like a great system. I mean, you have to, you can give it to somebody, you know. So, uh, but yeah, again, like just just seeing his uh, MVP case, I think he's more than earned um, the lead at it. And it's unfortunate that Joel Embiid went down. I don't think him missing 10 games shouldn't take him out of the race, you know, but but we'll see. But, yeah, I think he, you're right. He has more than enough of a case uh, for the MVP this year. Can you hear me? Yeah. So the – I think the – 
people and they're like, oh, you're disrespecting the process by bringing up the narrative. I, I it's not a sport. It's a team sport. So we're right. interpret we are interpreting results. So if this was a tennis regular season, then you could be like, oh, you know, tennis player A was clearly the best player in tennis this year. He beat everybody. He's the MVP. But no, it is a team sport. And so we have to rely on external evidence and context to try to compartmentalize and contextualize like what we're seeing. So, you know, if I saw a really, really great Giannis season like this year, I can contextualize that by saying like, oh, actually, like a big part of this was Coach Bud and his system kind of spitting up and chewing out teams, chewing up and spitting out teams from the Eastern Conference as things progressed that that actually wasn't as effective against the best teams in the league and it wasn't as effective in the playoffs so we add that context and we can we can kind of make it uh, we can kind of make a case for why Giannis wasn't the best player in the league this year and I think that's going to end up actually hurting him and you know that's the thing with LeBron it's like okay the it's not as simple as here are his numbers and here's the team's record it's the whole story and that's what that's where I think the narrative is uh, not a bad word, but actually just the story of his MVP. The story of LeBron's MVP is that on a very quick turnaround, uh, uh, with very little rest, after winning the championship, after being the finals MVP, he came back into the season with an injured co-star who missed almost half the games and a couple of COVID, a couple of uh, uh, COVID losses that cost starters to miss a combined three mm-hmm. weeks of time. He led them to within a game and a half of the, the number one overall seed. He, his numbers have been, you know, uh, you know, just every bit as good as last year, minus a few assists per game, which isn't him becoming a lesser passer. It's just him playing alongside Dennis Schroeder. Uh, but, but that's the story of his MVP. And, and you, you, you tell that story, and that's how, you plead the, that's how you plead the case of the value of an individual in a team sport. That's really all it is. It's not any more complicated than that. It, like, you know, I think a couple of Lakers uh, TV personalities, namely, you know, Rachel, uh, what's her name? Rachel Nichols, who's not a Lakers person, but is, you know, a LeBron fan, I guess you'd call her. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, McT- uh, uh, Dave McManaman and, and then I think Brian Windhorst did it too. Like Ramona Shelburne, they get on. They got on last year, and they were taking it to borderline theatrical foolishness. You know, Kobe's death. You know, he's old. You know, all this other stupid stuff. You know, oh, he he held a meeting in a conference room in a hotel in China, so he's the MVP. Like that was that was stupid. That was stupid, and and it and it took that part of the MVP race and threw it off the rails when the truth of the mm-hmm. matter is, is like the way that we decide it is story-based. It's just story-based within the context of what's actually happening within that locker room and uh, and on the court, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah and, and people think this is just a LeBron thing, which is really strange to me. Like, why did Westbrook win the MVP like three years ago, right? It wasn't just like, yes, he had the triple doubles, but it was because Kevin Durant left that summer, right? And they're like, he's going to carry a team and he carried them to like a three seed or a four seed or whatever it was. And we take the whole context within it, right? Just his season alone probably wouldn't have done it. When you look at the story, you know, 
one of the best players in the world ever left his team. He carried them. He had the heart, all that stuff is into it. And that's fine. It's an MVP award. You know, it's not, you know, something that's decided by per 36 and win shares and, you know, stuff, stuff like that. It is decided by on the court, your team has to win, but I just don't know why people think LeBron's the only one that, you know, uh, gets an advantage from the story being told from it. And that's just not true. The MVP has been about a story for the long time to go along with the basketball. So yeah, he has a case this year. I think, I think it's fine if you have someone else winning. It's just, I feel like it's pretty, um, it's pretty malpractice to say LeBron's not even a top three or whatever in the MVP, because I think he totally is. Uh, he's a totally good candidate for it. Yeah, he's a good candidate. And, it, you know, it is interesting as far as, like, the Russ MVP goes. There, there, There's a clear, like, path that happens with an MVP uh, conversation. And this is why Embiid is, is so uh, far up there, in my opinion. If you look back, it's like, okay, LeBron in 2009 has this... The voters, they have to And then there's the fatigue, and he's every bit as good the following season, but they don't give it to him. It's the mm-hmm. Steph Curry thing. Steph Curry wins an MVP averaging 23 points per game, but he wins the MVP. And he comes back to the ball here, and he's definitely better, so they have to give it to him again. And then in 2017, they're uh, they're still the best team in the league. He was the be- He wasn't the best player in the league, in my opinion, at that point. But he was the best player on the best team in the league in 2017. Should have been technically, you know, an MVP candidate. But you know, there's voter fatigue. There's like a there's like a pathway to this, and so that that's the unfortunate part about it. Is like it like it, I, I I'm glad that it's just a regular season award. It doesn't really amount to all that much for any of these mm-hmm. things because the truth is, is the whole process is flawed in, in a lot of ways. Um, but but it, it is what it is. I, I do think it's important to mention that he has a really good chance. And real quickly before we're done here, all of LeBron's numbers are up year over year. Last year when he was receiving first place MVP votes. Uh, scoring is up. Steals are up. Rebounding's up. Turnovers are down. Free throw percentage up. Three-point percentage up. Field goal percentage up. The only thing that's down is his assists. And so... Which again is product of them taking on a twenty million dollar a year guard uh, mm-hmm. uh, that to help with some of the ball handling responsibilities. So the truth of the matter is, is he's in that path now. He he missed out on an MVP last year. There's a lot of lingering. Uh, there's a lot of lingering kind of like angst over the fact that maybe he didn't deserve it, Giannis, because he clearly is nowhere near as good at basketball as LeBron. And then here comes LeBron, better the next year. So, I mean, to me, that's a prime setup uh, for him to, to receive a lot of votes. And uh, we'll see how it goes. A big part of it is going to be this tough part of the schedule and whether or not they can weather through it. Um, uh, th- it's tricky because the last month of the season, too, they have four sets of back-to-backs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think they have three more sets of back-to-backs just this month. So, when, it, 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 like, as long as, as long as they, you know, hang out there in the top two or three seeds in the West, given the circumstances, I, I, think, I think he deserves it. Um, really quickly, I wanted to touch on a couple of non Laker topics and get your thoughts on them. So mm-hmm. first of all, cl- the, the Clippers continue to be one of the most disappointing contenders that, uh, uh, that we've had in the last couple of years. Uh, and this is, this has been consistent from the start, by the way, they currently have the seventh best record in the league. 
Um, I guess my question for you is, aside from the usual stuff that we've all talked about, like them needing a point guard and blah, 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 why do you think that they've been so underwhelming, particularly on the defensive end? Yeah, it's funny because Clipper fans do not, or Clipper people do not like you. I can tell it's it's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> it's hilarious seeing you quote tweet them, and they are like, "Stay out of our, stay out of our team," which I just think is absolutely hilarious. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's funny because like you know, I like to joke about the PG narrative and you know all the Paul George stuff. Who's actually played really well this year? Actually, he's had a great year, so I give him credit. But when I watch their team, like it's just looking at the basketball, like they put zero pressure on the basket. The only person who does is Zubac when he rolls to the rim. And again, that can be schemed out, you know, when teams really want to um, because they'll trap Kawhi and, you know, they'll help off of anyone who they want to. They don't trust anyone to make a jump shot when it matters. I think they'll live with Marcus Morris, you know, and all those guys who shoot a good percentage. But I think when the game bodes down and closeouts are a little bit harder against Dallas, I mean, they didn't score for like five minutes. This is with Kawhi and PG on the floor, like two all two superstar wings, and they couldn't get a basket because Paul George. Every one of their actions, like they run a lot of really, like Ty Lue's a good offensive coach. They run a lot of like really good actions. They run like zippers, and um, PG comes off two down screens, and all these actions pretty much lead to a step back contested mid range jumper. Like that's because they just do not want to take contact. And then Paul George, I saw after the game, he's like, the refs aren't giving me calls, you know, and stuff, stuff like that. Which again. Like maybe, but that doesn't really take you out from attacking the basket. So they get nothing at the rim other than Kawhi dunking on people once or twice um, pretty nicely. But all their shots are mid-range pull-ups or tough contested threes. And again, they move the ball around and try to find the open shot. But, you know, late in games, that's really, it causes for inconsistency in basketball. And as you know, when people, when teams go on runs, and even last night when Charlotte went on a run, it, it, catapults and when you can't get easy shots um it's tough to stop those and i think that's where their inconsistent play comes from but pg and choir and Kawhi especially is, are good enough to where they're gonna kind of they're gonna win enough games to be a high seed but i was looking at the standings man and they are tied for like sixth or seventh right now in terms of the losses like another loss would drop them down to six i think or something so uh it's i saw the news today that they're interested in lonzo ball which made me kind of sad because lonzo's like a lifelong Laker to me but I don't know if Lonzo really fixes that kind of issues Lonzo's not attacking the rim guard either he's a really good ball mover which I think Patrick Beverly is Nick Batum all are really great ball movers but that's kind of what I see in them what do you what do you see in their inconsistencies kind of? how the heck are they going to get Lonzo like I saw that too and I was like I was like what like they don't have any assets they don't need draft zero it's just it yeah. doesn't make any sense um no. it, it would require it would require David Griffin thinking you know in his head like oh like I'd rather have Patrick Beverly or something, something <sighs> like that um so a couple things really quick the the Clippers are tied with the San Antonio Spurs in the loss column um, Hilarious. So here's the thing. You know, I'm hard on the Clippers for for a lot of reasons. One, I am a huge. I, I've always had a huge problem with like prematurely crowning people um, because, like, I don't think people. And for the record, LeBron is one of the best best examples of this in NBA history. He went to the the, the Miami Heat in 2011 and thought he already had the trophies. He damn near said as much when he was in my in that Miami party that they threw after they signed everybody like the, it, it it is an objectively unlikable quality for someone to talk and act as though they've done something when they haven't done anything yet and the clippers haven't put in the work and that's the most important detail and this is why their defense sucks you know on paper their defense should be awesome 
Patrick Beverly, you know, although he's been injured for a lot of this year, you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, just those two uh, should be good enough to be an elite defensive team, especially when you factor in they have Nick Batum, another big wing, and they have Marcus Morris Sr., who's another uh, big wing. The problem, the reason why they don't defend well is people are looking at it with a simplistic view of what defense is. They think, oh, Kawhi can guard player X and Paul George can guard player Y. Yeah, that's great, but the vast majority of defense is not just straight-up one-on-one defense. It's all about your team concepts. How are you in rotations? How are you when you're not matched up right in transition? How are you when you have to send a double team and everyone's chaotically running around? The Lakers have nowhere near as much defensive talent on paper as the Clippers, but they put in the work. They do what you're supposed to do to guard. They operate well in chaos. They're, 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 Frank does a much better job of setting up their scheme. Everything they do makes sense. They play to their strengths. They chase people off the three-point line because they have smaller guards. It's, it all makes sense. That's why it doesn't work. Uh, that's why it doesn't work for the Clippers. They have everything that they've needed on paper, and they haven't put in the, the requisite work, which for the record is the microcosm of the entire L.A. Clippers experience since they signed both of them. Speaking large, you know, on, uh, 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 on, uh, in the large scale of, of that entire team and their goals and their failures last year and so far this year. As far as the offensive end goes, it's really simple, and it's the reason why I sent that tweet out and the reason why Paul George looks so, like I said, pathetic in that stupid press conference where he's making these excuses, it's you if, – if you want something and you want to complain about something, which I hate complaining regardless. I don't like when LeBron complains about the refs. And he's literally a guy who's bullying his way to the basket all day long and constantly getting fouled. But the point is, is like if you're going to do it, at least come from a position of strength. At least come from a position where you're backed by evidence. You literally, other than the, the Orlando Magic, or I, I think it's the Orlando Magic – you're you're 29th in the entire league at get at generating shot attempts within five feet of the basket and within the restricted area, and it's been like that all season long. You are a team that relies on off the dribble pull up jump shots from Lou Williams, from Paul George, and from Kawhi Leonard. And even in this league where that type of jump shooting gets a lot of calls, it's not going to get the same level of calls as a team that pressures the rim consistently. And then you have the nerve to walk up to the press conference table and be like, we're doing our part. We're putting pressure on the rim. We're just not getting calls. No, you're not. You're living in fantasy land. And you're the same guy that stood up to the press conference after you tricked off game six against Denver and said, we're in control of this series. It just It's an objectively unlikable quality. They're complaining and living in fantasy land, and they don't understand that we all have eyes and that we're watching the damn games. We're watching the games, man. Like Especially Lakers Twitter because they love hate watching you and rooting for you to fail. So like we're all there, we're all paying attention, and 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 I, I don't know. It just it is what it is. I just I just you know. And for the record, I'm the most scared of them. They are the team that I'm most scared of to beat the Lakers, uh, at least yeah. in the West, because they're they are built to do it. I just what what have you seen in the last two years to show them that they will? Right, right. Let me, let me ask you this because I tweeted this out, and like you said, I, I know I understand the NBA is not no longer an isolation game. It's a pick and roll heavy game. You know what I mean? But like, it was very weird to me that Luca's absolutely cooking, right? Like he is, he is, he is not even seeing a defender. Like he is, there was not. He was so comfortable. He could have been in slippers that game. Like he was absolutely comfortable walking to the rim, doing floaters, step back threes, not feeling a thing. This is late game. This is a you know this is a big time game. They need the win, and they have Nick Batum picking up Luca full court. You know this is with Kawhi. And again, I understand it's not a one on one game, but like 
Nick Batum picking him up full court, and then later on they switch. Then later on they switch Marcus Morris on him. I'm like, and this dude Luca does not even feel these dudes. Like he has, there's no, you know, there's no like pressure on him. He's literally walking to the rim doing floaters, and again Paul George I think switched on him with like two minutes left, and by t- by that time Luca's completely on fire. Like his whole body is pretty much heated up. He is not feeling <laughs> a thing. You know what I mean? So, but it's just interesting to me when I see that. I'm like, it's so weird, and people are like, oh, they're load managing. You know, I'm like, this is Luca has like forty on like easy easy shots like this is still your you know have some pride have some use the pride i mean Nick, load managing Nick Batum is 32 i mean i don't i just don't understand that part of it don't make it so easy for them and that's the thing that's really weird to me they have a lot of weird quirks that don't make any sense to me they're hiding Kawhi on i think it was um brunson in the corner i'm like it just doesn't does not make any sense at all what, what they're doing with that. I want to ask you that because do you think that's an issue? Like, I think it's very weird when, like, even LeBron last night switched on LaMelo when LaMelo started cooking just because, you know, just to show, like, hey, we're not allowing. This is not what we're allowing. Or even Terry Rozier when he got cooking, he switched on him. Like, it's just really weird when I when I see that. I'm like, they have the two, probably the best, two best wing defenders in the league on any given night, and they are they have Nick Batum guarding Luka when he's, absolutely cooking anyone in isolation is just just really strange to me those kind of things that i see they have really weird quirks about their team yeah there there, there's something off in just the chemistry (laughs) of that entire team's uh, the way it's built well what clipper fans will tell you is that oh uh um uh ty lu is holding everything and saving everything for the playoffs that's what (sighs) they'll tell you which to me that's stupid because the whole premise of saving things for the playoffs only makes sense within the realm of single elimination anyway It's something that makes a lot more sense in football because like Bill Belichick will save plays and schemes and formations and stuff for the playoffs because he knows that he needs to beat you once. And if he can throw you off for a quarter and a half because you have to adjust to a new scheme, it might win him a playoff game. That's not how it works in the NBA. Like the Lakers could show you everything that they do. You have to play them seven times. So the, 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 there's no advantage gained by, oh, maybe I'll win the first quarter of game one because I randomly started throwing you know some crazy defensive scheme or some offensive scheme at somebody. And, and quite frankly, with the, how deep the West is and the, and the seeding problems that the, the Clippers are putting themselves in danger of dealing with, it, they need to win games now. They need to win games. Like for, so the whole idea that they've been withholding is stupid. To me, it's a matter of, of, of like I said, and I'm just reiterating it, but the, the, the scheme and the effort and the dirty work that a defense has to do to make a star feel uncomfortable. You know, Dennis Schroeder is a, is a talented defensive player, so I don't want to undercut this. But do you think Damian Lillard is worried about whether or not he can get by Dennis Schroeder? Hell no. Like, Dennis Schroeder is not presenting... Now, like, my point is, is like, it's not like Ben Simmons, where Ben Simmons literally had Damian Lillard feeling like he was in prison and just single coverage. That's not what Dame Lillard feels when he goes up against Dennis Schroeder. What literally is happening there is the Lakers, as a team, as a scheme, are making the Stars feel uncomfortable. And the problem with the Clippers is they've got all the talent in the world... But they're not make, like the Lakers would never in a million years have let Luca do that. Mm-hmm. You know they got burned by Luca once at the beginning of last season, and yeah. they have really, really taken care of him the last four or five times they've played him. Because the Lakers will not let you beat them with your star. They they will right. not let you do it because they they they're 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 not caught up in the the mano mano type style of defense. It's it's us five against your five. 
and 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 that's and that's why I think they have uh you know that's the difference in my opinion but between those two. Uh, really quickly yeah. before I get you out of here, I wanted to share a quick thought about the uh, uh, about the Warriors. So, you know, I think the Warriors are are a fascinating case study of uh, of the way aesthetics kind of like throw off people's impressions of uh, of a basketball team. And because, in my opinion, the Lakers and the Warriors have a lot in common. Uh, Particularly just with like their 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 roster build and the way that they're trying to win games. So for the record, the Lakers are a lot more talented. So I don't want to uh, make that equivalency. I just think there's a stylistic similarity. You've got this supreme offensive creator in the form of LeBron and Steph Curry, but for some reason the offenses struggle, and the fan bases get all riled up talking about like oh. This offense looks stupid. Why isn't Steph doing this? Why isn't LeBron doing this? Why don't they run more offense? If it's the Lakers, you're complaining that they're not running enough offense. If it's the Warriors, they're complaining that they're running too much offense. It's like it's literally just nonstop complaining. Mm-hmm. And what they don't realize is like that is by design. The way that team was put together, when they were putting the roster together, the Warriors said, we don't want to be the 2018 Cavs. We don't want Steph to have the most incredible monster statistical season ever, but not be able to guard anybody. And what they wanted was they wanted a team that would muck it up and have tons of length and athleticism and speed and play with a ton of pace that would wear teams out physically, defend the heck out of the ball, and then we just hope Steph can generate enough offense that will win. And if you would have told me coming into the season, even after the first few weeks of the season, I thought they were a terrible team. There's, no, there's not a lot of talent on that roster. You know, Andrew Wiggins was terrible at his previous spot. Kelly Oubre is nothing but a role player. I'm a big believer in Draymond Green, and I think that the Warriors fan base underrates the heck out of him. However, he's not what he once was. He struggles a lot offensively in ways that he didn't used to. So the truth of the matter is, if I told you, hey, Warriors fans, back when Klay Thompson tore his Achilles, if I would have said, you're going to be 21-20, and 20, they'd be stoked. Because the, there's not a lot of talent on the team. The Western Conference is super deep. They, they were going to lean so heavily on Steph. That's a win in these circumstances. But instead, they're so obsessively focused on how the offense looks. Well, like, oh, Steph's missing a lot of shots. And it, or, you know, Steph is slumping. And it's like, no, no, no. They have consciously made a decision to muck things up by prioritizing talent that can carry them defensively because they believe that will win. And I really do think they're winning above their talent level. So what do you think about what you've seen from them in that regard? Yeah. Like it's funny as, as fans, we want to feel good about our team, right? Like that's the whole point of us being fans. We watch a team. We want to feel like we're not, we're not only feeling good about this season, but we feel about good about where we're going. Right. And I feel like a lot of these post game, like press conferences are all kind of for show. They're all media savvy. But when you hear Steve Kerr say something like, Oh, why didn't you play Steph more? Oh, we're not really going for wins this year. That's that like really attacks a fan base. And then you add that with, I don't think I've seen Wiseman smile on the court once. Like, I don't think I've seen him. Not, I'm not saying he doesn't enjoy playing basketball. I don't think you get that good without enjoying some love. I mean, Andrew Wiggins may be a co- conclusion of that. But, like, I don't think I've seen Wiseman, like, enjoy 
one minute of his play out there. But again, you combine that with watching, you know, LaMelo and his, his play. And again, they're tweeting LaMelo box scores, which I think is psychotic behavior, but you know, like he tweeting out LaMelo's box scores or watching Anthony Edwards dunk on someone and have this joy exuberance that really, even though the Minnesota Timberwolves are nine and 42 or whatever they are still Edwards gives like a positive view of that. And then they see this team where it's like, what are we doing? Are we trying to win? Are we developing Wiseman and pool or what? And I think that's where they really struggle with it. I think about like, I don't know if you're watching the Lakers in like 2007, 2008. Remember that's when I started watching and they had Andrew Bynum. Right. And again, Andrew Bynum wasn't picked second. He was picked, I think 13th or 10th or something like that. But he was a first round pick with a Kobe who was obviously trying to win. And so you had this mix of like, two players trying to develop and the Lakers became good and Andrew Bynum played well, but Andrew Bynum played well. And it was like his third year, right? It was like his th- third or second year. And again, the question is, are the Warriors going to wait for him to play? And I think this is a whole mix. So like when people are watching, they're not even watching these games or watching Draymond. And now they're trying to be like, Hey, why don't you score 10 points a game? It's not what Draymond does. You know, this you've watched Draymond for the last three years. Who cares how many points he scores? That's not how he impacts the game. Asking him to do that now is kind of, doesn't really make sense to me so like i'm more of a i'm a bigger draymond guy than a lot of people i guess now i still think he impacts the game at a huge level even though he's not scoring so that's kind of what i see from them and they're a mid-level team i mean when steph goes off the floor i think they're a g league team like they just they just can't score Ubre and wiggins taking mid-range jumpers or pull-ups it's just not gonna work so that's a comparison i see i don't know if they have a powell gasol trade in them where they just get another great star player. I think that's the move. But yeah, I see a lot of like Andrew Bynum and Wiseman, very similar, very skilled. I think Wiseman has a lot more potential than Andrew Bynum, obviously, but just that kind of like young player mixed with a superstar who's, who's trying to win. And it's, it's funny to see them. I mean, I I feel like a team that just went through a super duper dynasty would, you know, be able to handle a one 500 season a little (laughs) bit better, but it's, it's not, it's not happening. Thing, things can turn around quickly. I mean, look, yeah. look no further than the Lakers. But, I mean, Draymond's a perfect example of what we're talking about here. Like, the book is out on Draymond. When he's on the mm-hmm. floor, your team usually is winning. Like, it just – it is what it is. And if you look at the Lakers – or the Warriors this year, it's like when Draymond's on the floor with Steph, like, it just make stuff just happens. But, again, people get so obsessively focused on him missing a layup or him not wanting to shoot or him, the defense not guarding him, and they're not focused on the bigger vision, which is it's a trade-off with Draymond, just like it is with any other player. Like, guess what? Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of a trade-off with Steph. Like, he's an average defensive player. Like, if you put Dennis Schroeder into his role, you would be a better defensive team. You know, the the reality is, is like, for, for, for their way, so they're so focused on these aesthetics that they uh, that they they get like so caught up and bogged down in the uh uh in the in what they're seeing that they're not paying attention to the result which is the whole point of what you're doing and if you look at the, if you look at the warriors if i told you uh like if you look at the warriors in the standings they're below like way below 500 against good teams against teams that are 500 or above and then they're taking care of business against bad teams now if i would have told you going into the season like hey the Warriors are operating at a big talent disadvantage, but they have Steph. Then the most likely outcome was that they would take care of business against bad teams because Steph could lift them over the top and they're well coached and that they play hard. And then they're probably going to be overmatched when they go against, against the good teams. Like this season is going exactly how it should go for a player of Steph's caliber and with the amount of talent that's on the roster. And, and it just, 
I, I think it's I think it's just funny because like it, it like people get so they're just they're they're lost and you know I don't know I don't know what you do like people say like oh would you trade Wiseman in this uh, uh, in this Minnesota pick for uh, for Bradley Beal and for the record of course you do but the thing is is like does is Bradley Beal going to make them contend for a title I don't think so I I think I think he makes them better. But I think right now they're a ten seed because guess what they're the ten seed. So like they're or not the so so the thing is is like uh like if you have Bradley Beal what are they like are they the Nuggets like are they are they the Nuggets you know like okay yeah then next year you get Clay Thompson back and it gets more interesting. But a big part of this is like the league is a lot more talented now than it used to be, and you you know the if the same roster from the 2015 Warriors isn't really enough anymore with how much talent there is in the league. Uh, it's just, I just think, I think the, just like any other fan base, they're just being a little unrealistic. Yeah. And I listen to a lot of like the Warriors kind of podcasts and stuff. And I think the, the point that they make, which is a valid one is that Steph is what 33 now. So, I mean, like, and he's in his prime. So I think you owe it to a guy like that to kind of, you know, try to make his prime worth his while. I mean, he's what created, he's, increase the value of that franchise by the billions right and to try to develop i mean it's pretty clear to see i don't think i mean i think wiseman's gonna be really good but i think it's pretty clear to see that he's not going to be ready by the time that steph needs him to be ready to be the kind of playoff performer so i mean i feel like they're gonna try to do both in my opinion what they're gonna do is keep this minnesota pick if it conveys this year or not we'll see and then uh, try to keep Wiseman develop and try to do both at the same time which to me if you're doing both at the same time you're doing neither kind of mm, thing so like that's so that's <laughs> I've seen the Lakers try to do it I remember um, at the end of Kobe's uh, prime but it, it kind of got derailed because he had the Achilles but I remember they signed like Jeremy Lin and Carlos Boozer and you know players that just weren't going to help you win but they also had high draft picks or like Julius Randle and Jordan Clarkson so they were kind of doing both which again doing neither and uh and that can lead you to a 10-year playoff drought like the lakers had or however long it was so that's the trouble you get to and i think that's where they're kind of seeing the not light at the end of the tunnel but the dark at the end of the tunnel you know what i mean where like it's been light for so long and now you're kind of seeing the dark dark into it um but again steph is still at mvp level i think the warriors are gonna try to do what they can i just i wonder my whole like thing i question is like if clay was playing right now and they were still 500 does that change how we view this team like if let's just say Clay was healthy this year. Like, does that change how we view the field front office? Does it change how we view Steve Kerr? Like, I feel like the Clay has given them a, cl- a crutch. And I'm just wondering, like, if Clay were to have played this year and they were still bad, because I love Clay Thompson. I just don't know how much he solves their issues this, like, just on this roster specifically. Um, he's Again, he's another insane shooter. And at healthy Clay is a top 20 player in the league. I'm just wondering how much he solves. Like, how many more wins does that add to this construction of the roster? And I think it's given them a crutch that they may use going forward another year, which is which is be interesting. If Clay Thompson was healthy, I think they'd be, you know, in the mix in the West for mm-hmm. sure. But this idea that they would be – you know, on the same tier as like the the Lakers and the Nets, I entirely disagree. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I've been on the record about this for a long time, and Warriors Twitter gets super upset with me every time that we we talk about this. But like, I think that a big part of what made the 2015 2016 Warriors successful was the fact that uh, um, was, was the neat. fact that uh, uh, Steph Curry caught the league off guard. You know, with his style. 
the defenses weren't ready to prepare to deal with it. That's not to say that he wasn't good. It just means that like there was kind of like a market inefficiency that they were going after there. Kind of like what the Rockets were doing in 2018, you know? And what I think the reality of the situation was is like Kevin Durant was so, so, so good that he put them over the top continuing into the future after that. But without Kevin Durant, you know, the Steph, Clay, Draymond core was not a top tier core in the league anymore. They were a second tier core in the league at that point. That's just my opinion. A lot of people would disagree with me on that. Uh, But the reality is, is like, you know, I, I do think that if Clay was healthy and more or less the same guy he was before the ACL tear, that they would have been, you know, right there with Denver and Utah and Phoenix, you know, a team that we thought was really good, but that wasn't quite, you know, on that, uh, on the level they need uh, uh, to really, to really feel like they're dangerous. Um, as far as the, uh, the stuff you brought up at the beginning, I think it's important to, to touch on this really quick. Like, like, even though I, I'm trying to get Warriors Twitter to chill out in terms of like understanding the, the optics of what, uh, what their offense is doing there, there's some legit criticism. Like, yeah, I agree that to reading Wiseman, like with training wheels, doesn't make a ton of sense. Like your offense sucks. Why not lean a little bit more on him? Don't discourage him from shooting threes. Let him be more aggressive. Play him a lot. Let him figure it out. Because the truth is, is like, you're going to be, you know, what was the range of outcomes this year? 10 seed to, you know, maybe seven seed. So you were going to be in the play in no matter what. And if you're banking on the fact that Steph can carry you in the play-in, which I would too, like I wouldn't pick against Steph in the play-in, then why not take your lumps during the regular season and try to lean a little bit more on Wiseman and try to get him to develop uh, if that's your plan. But that's, that, that's, the, that's the, the crux of the problem, though, is like you, you can't you, – you don't want to be the Boston Celtics and, and be <laughs> hoarding on the assets. You know, that, that pick for the, from the Minnesota Timberwolves is not going to help – you win a basketball game right now, it's going to help Steph win a basketball game when he's 34. That's the way you have to think about it. And that pick is probably not going to be old enough and experienced enough to be able to impact winning all that much until he's, until Steph is 36. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big sell the farm guy. Uh, and, and I know I get a bad rap for that because uh, it's something that LeBron has done at all of his destinations. But I would remind you that, LeBron has found a way to win uh, uh, by doing that. And, you know, one of the big things, last thing I'll say about this is, you know, people talk about how, oh, well, LeBron, you know, screwed over cap sheets and everything everywhere he went, blah, blah, blah. That's not the way the league works anymore. J.R. Smith isn't getting a four-year deal anymore. Uh, the Stars are getting four-year deals. Um, but, like, the Danny Greens, the, you know, the THTs, Alex Crusoe, they're all signing two-year deals. So there's no there's no such thing as this idea that you can sell out for the future or excuse me for the moment and not still have the opportunity to rebuild because you do. And you have the mid-level exception every single year and you have the biannual exception every other year. And you can you know work the trade market and things along those lines. It is a lot easier now to retool on the fly than it used to be. So this idea that like if you sold Wiseman and this Minnesota pick for Bradley Beal that you wouldn't have any future is stupid to me because if you have a, a good destination, a culture stars, you're going to get the Montrez Harrells. You're going to get the Serge Ibaka's. You're going to get these like really, really talented players who are willing to take a discount to compete for a title. And, and I, and I think, I think that'll honestly be something that's going to be really interesting to watch with the Lakers in the next five years. 
is yeah, just I mean, how well they retool. Right. I mean, you could have all the picks in the world and not like I, I saw like a good, I think when the AD trade happened, I forgot who, who wrote it, but someone said like, you can get 10 straight number one picks and not pick a player as good as Anthony Davis. Like you could, you could just, you could, that could happen. So like I, I was for like a re, I remember the Lakers were rebuilding with Ingram, Clarkson and uh, Lonzo and all those guys. And I was really for that. I was down with, I think fans will be with it. If you tell them straight up what's happening right now, I think there's a miscommunication between the front office and golden state, the coaching staff and with the fans because they're being sold this one platter and they're eating a different platter. And it's like, I don't know what's really going on here game to game. So I think there's not like a clear direction to it. And with like LeBron destroying cap sheets, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that like if he trusts your organization, he'll sign. I mean, he signed with the Lakers four years. I think he gave the Cavs one year deals, and I mean, we saw how Dan Gilbert operates. I, I think he was pretty right in in terms of doing that. So, and again, you it's all worth it. Ask any any team if they would take LeBron, destroy the cap for five years to go to the be a for sure finals appearance. I mean, I think teams would do that. That's what this is all about. And, and like we watch with Danny Ainge, we make the jokes about he almost traded for someone. He almost did this deal. And now look, they're a middling playoff team. They're locked into two guys who are great. Tatum and Brown are awesome, but they have Kemba on a huge long deal now. So NBA moves fast, man. They, they owned all the next, the Nets picks for decades and decades and the Nets became a title contender before them. I mean, it's just the NBA moves quick. So in my opinion, you have to um, try to do what you can for the superstar you have because teams move so quickly. Like it's uh, the Lakers couldn't sit down and sit around and wait for Lonzo and Ingram to get better so that LeBron could win a title. Like it it just wasn't happening. Once LeBron signed here, it was clear. So Mm. I think that's how team team building is going right now in the league. And you have to, you have to catch up. For sure. And, and again, like the, it's, you're never going to be as messed up with the cap as you were because of the shorter deals yeah. for the role players. Uh, the, like, you're right. Like, I mean, the truth is, is where LeBron kind of screwed over the Cavs and it wasn't really LeBron. It was just the nature of the league at that point is J.R. Smith had a bunch of huge shots in the NBA finals and he needed to get paid. Tristan Thompson was an absolute dominant offensive rebound and defensive force for the, for the Cavs. So he had to get paid. And, at that time, the role players got four-year deals. That's just the way it worked. That's not going to be the way it is anymore. Uh, real quickly, uh, I promise this is the last thing. Uh, I just thought of it because you brought up Kemba. So Dennis Schroeder is up for uh, an extension this summer. Mm-hmm. To me, the comp that comes to mind that makes it scary from a cap perspective is Drew Holiday. So what's Drew Holiday? Drew Holiday is one of the best defensive guards in the league. And he's an okay offensive guard. Like if you were to rank him as an offensive player, he's a middle of the pack to below middle of the pack offensive guard. Like there are just so many offensive point guards in the league right now that he's not even close offensively to a lot of those guys. What if, how would you describe Dennis Schroeder? He's one of the best defensive guards in the league. Mm -hmm who's an offensive weapon, not on the same level as the best offensive guards in the league, but he's an offensive weapon. I don't think Dennis Schroeder is as good as Drew, but I think he's close. And uh, Drew Holiday's making $30 million a year. So I don't think the Lakers are going to pay him 30 But the truth is, is like, I could see Dennis's agent looking at, at the situation and going like, I'm an all-defensive player. Um, I was LeBron's co-star for half the season, and we were winning most of our games. 
and uh, I should be making $26 million a year. Let's say Dennis asks for that. Are you of the persuasion that it's a good idea to tie up your cap with Dennis Schroeder for $25 million a year for four years? Uh, it's tough because basically I don't even think the Lakers can offer him that much right now. I think his, his extension has a, has a max they can go at. I think it's like 22 or something like that a year that they can offer him. And I'm we'll kind of fine with Do you think 22 yeah. makes sense? I think it does. I think you just have to take it into the Lakers context to where they have LeBron and AD locked up, which means their cap is, they have no cap room anyway. They're not going to have money in terms of free agency to offer anyone. So if you lose Dennis problem, it can, but I mean, the Lakers haven't really been paying the tax for the last few years um, anyway. So like, I like you can't, you can't lose Dennis Schroeder and then you don't get that money to spend. You know what I mean? Like because of how the NBA salary cap works. So, and they have his bird rights, which means he's a restricted free agent. So that means they can match any offer. You know, I believe that that can come at him. So um, I, I think that that amount of money is fine. I think he's been really good. He's also 27. It's not like you're locking up a 30-year-old. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're locking up a guy who's pretty young, uh, who's going to get better. You said he's close to Drew, Drew Holiday. I mean, I feel like that would be a pretty hot take if you put that out there. I, I don't you know think if so? He's, I think but so. Think I feel like he, Think about what they do. No, I, 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 I understand. I just feel like Drew Holiday is a guy who's made multiple all-star teams, who's um, who's – People say he's the best defender in the league. No, I'm with you in terms of production. Like I think they are. I think like, Drew Holiday is he has eighty percent of Drew Holiday. Yeah, I, even then, I, yeah, he probably could. But I mean, Drew Holiday's looked at as a savior in Milwaukee. I mean, you just, I mean, they traded three first round picks for Drew Holiday. I mean, that's. I don't think anyone's putting up three first round picks for Dennis Schroeder. I'm just looking at him how he's viewed around the league. Um, yeah, I think 22 is fine. I mean, Kuzma makes 16, right, or or like 13 or something a year. So it's. It's not like a huge, I mean, it's kind of a huge gap, but I don't think you find guards like this anywhere, right? Like you don't, it's hard to find scoring guards like this that are fit next to LeBron. And uh, he, he's so dynamic in what he brings. And uh, you're basically locking him up for the LeBron in AD years, which I think is fine. Um, you're not going to have room to to save on that. And if you want to move him later, you can. So I think it's a fine deal. Um, and he can't, I don't even think the Lakers can offer him 30 million a year. So it's going to be somewhere around the four year 80, 90 range which i'm i'm fine with how about you are you you okay with that i mean as long as genie's willing to pay the tax i think it makes sense but i mean it just gets difficult i mean and then the other thing too is uh just he relies so much on his athleticism that gets tricky uh from the standpoint of uh um uh just like how well he'll project in the later years of his deal now, the good yeah. news is, is he hasn't dealt with too many injuries in his career, mm-hmm. and he's only 27 years old. So there, that makes it a little less sketchy. Uh, the other thing, too, that will end up helping the Lakers potentially is, did you see that uh, the TV deal that came out for the NFL yesterday? Mm-mm. Something crazy, like over $10 billion a year just from TV <laughs> for the NFL. Uh, the reason why I thought that was interesting was, you know, there was... <sighs> There was all this talk about like an NBA TV rights bubble. I mean, Clay Travis was one of the guys who was leading it, and he's like a blowhard who's constantly just, you know, he's got other motives. But uh, his whole point was, you know, the no one's watching these NBA games, so uh, uh, this TV rights bubble is going to burst, and then NBA salary caps are going to fall way down, and it's going to screw the league up was his whole thing. And TV ratings have been a problem for the NFL as well. And what was really interesting to me about it 
was this rights deal, which the rights deal encapsulated more than TV. It also encapsulated streaming and some social media stuff and like highlight rights and stuff along those lines. What I always said was more eyes are on the NBA than ever. It's not being watched on TV was, but more eyes are on it than ever because people are consuming the NBA in all these different ways. And so what will be fascinating is, is how over time – uh, how they value that when they're negotiating the next rights deal, which kicks in in 2025, um, and how that could potentially, you know, massively increase the salary cap. Uh, uh, but it'll be interesting to see because that was always the concern was whether or not TV companies would ever pay this much again. And we found out yesterday that yes, they will. <laughs> They'll just they just plan on distributing it differently. Yeah, for sure. And I think you said that a lot more eyes are on it. I think that's a good and bad thing. Some of the things, the way that the NBA is covered is a lot more um, transactional in terms of like who's going where. And that's where a lot of the views kind of come from. And those don't really mm-hmm. translate to um, watching views. I think there's a shift that's coming um, where like more people are kind of into the actual basketball. And I think that's a good thing. I think that'll lead to a long. It won't be a lot of short term kind of growth, but in the long term, it'll help. And is a way longer conversation we can have on that but for sure but i yeah. just yeah just just in terms of like seeing the nfl like when i watch i don't watch football but when i do when it's on or whatever they pretty much stick to the game like there's not a lot of like you watch an nba broadcast and man those guys are doing like their own podcast within a game going on you couldn't even tell there's a game in front of them and i think that kind of hurts the product and hurts the money lakers have a huge tv deal just they have the biggest one in the league by i think by far Knicks might be second but just looking at it from that perspective, you want the league to kind of grow and that's kind of how it goes. And the NFL has done a really good job at the NFL has a lot of bigger issues. I see that people say all the time. They really, they're not really pro player as the NBA is, um, but they, they know how to market their sport. And it, and like you said, with that TV deal, it, it kind of shows. Yeah. And it, 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 I agree with you. It, we'll be real quick about this because we're cresting over an hour and a half here. We'll <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the, the, people talk about the NBA, and I agree with you. Like, I, I think officiating is a huge problem. I think the way the league is covered in a lot of ways is a huge problem. It's a lo- it's way too melodramatic. I agree, uh, but the overall product is still good, and people still like mm-hmm. watching it in in various formats. And I think that's the important detail because if you look at the NFL, like the NFL, you know, gets way more viewers than the NBA does, and it's. Think you uh, cut out here? All right, can you hear me? There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, real quickly, and then we'll get out of here. But like the in the NFL, like guess what they have to deal with? They have, uh, you know, if you're you come to watch quarterbacks and receivers and passing and catching, if you have a bad offensive line, the quarterback can't make a damn throw. And so, like, a lot of times, like, games will be really boring to watch because of line play and the fact that the line, they can't figure out line play. They deal with similar officiating problems with wide receivers and, and defensive backs. And when should we call holding? When should we call pass interference? How, how, how do we officiate these sorts of things? There are so, the NFL has similar watchability problems uh, that, that happen over time. And, and, and I, my thing is, is that, the the league perseveres in the form that people love football and uh and they always will love football and basketball is the same way and right now in the nfl there are more good 
weeks than ever. And, and the same goes for the, uh, for basketball. I'm just, I'm naturally an optimist, so I'm not as concerned, but I do think it's okay to talk about the problems that the league has had. Uh, anyway, yeah, I'm going to, sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out of here cause uh, we've been going <laughs> for a while, but this was really good, man. And, uh, I thought we got to a lot of really, really good stuff. And, uh, uh, I appreciate your time this morning and I appreciate all of you guys who have tuned in, tuned in and listened. Um, I will have the podcast version out shortly. I have some work stuff I have to do first, but, um, uh, I appreciate all you guys and we'll see you next week for sure. Have a good one.